bears and ladies make their own podcasts. They do not make them as they please. They do not make them under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on your brain and your heart. Knackers and the Vag. Francis Leach. Hi, Helen, we're back. That is not my name. What is my name? <laughs> Knackers and the Veg. No, what is the my v- name? You're the Veg. And who is this? This is Knackers. And, and I. how come I don't get the teddy bear? You do get the teddy bear. Tell oh, everybody. Mate. Hello. How hello. are you? Welcome back. Thank you. Um, welcome back. Oh, Christ. I sound like a parody of myself. <laughs> um, welcome in any case. No. What would be a more appropriate greeting? Uh, thank you for your perseverance. I appreciate your masochism. What is Knackers? Knackers is this magnificent uh, little teddy bear with a blue nose who uh, looks like he's seen better days, but he is a glorious creature. And I do have a soft spot for soft toys, I have to admit. I'm not a plushie. Let's get that clear. That's a not furry. My... <laughs> You're not a furry. <laughs> is, what... What? is a furry someone who likes to copulate with, with soft toys? I think not necessarily. Not, did I just take that too far? No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. A plushie is somebody who um, plunges their member or has a <laughs> something started well plunged today. into them by a plush toy, right? Yes, that's that's my understanding of it. A, a furry is um, a, a, a person who likes to don fantastical gear, generally made of a fur-like substance. So cosplaying teddy bears. Um, kind of. Well, I mean, not all furries, I think, necessarily fuck. But all people who fuck in fur are furries. It's one of those <laughs> I am neither logical th- fallacies. <laughs> I, am neither I don't know. I don't know. I would say bless you. Bless you for your perversion. People yeah. young and old, whatever brings you to climax or quite near it or to pleasure, so long as it is relatively sane. And doesn't harm anybody. And is consensual. That's right. You and I have both done odd things in the past, haven't we? And we'll probably do so again in the future. Quite possibly. Never with each other, though. That's right. Probably a good idea. It is. This is how you retain a friendship for 30 years, (laughs) Francis Lee. Well, we can talk about these things. That's right. Joins the vag again. And um, seriously, thank you for fucking listening to us. Hey, yeah, we were blown away. That was, I mean, just amazed that... um, more than Francis and and I had actually downloaded the podcast. Um, and this was um, due in large part, I think, not to us or any gifts that we may have now or may have had in the past, which, let's face it, are minimal. Oh, great. What can you do? Talk a lot. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, but, An overabundant resource. But rather due to your your needs... Um, which, if you're listening to this podcast, are probably a sense of belonging, less alienation, thanks very much, and perhaps more what we might broadly term wealth, whether that's money in the bank or (coughs) just the ability to live a life that doesn't feel like shit to you. That's what we were talking about. We were trying to talk about it in a broader context. Now, I want to narrow the conversation because I fucking go on. and That to, has never been known to happen. And, <laughs> and to narrow my conversation, well, we have Knackers the Bear, my male authority figure and FM Breakfast Radio co-host to shut up me, the Vag, but also to make it relevant to you and really concentrate our conversation, I want to talk about a realm in which I reckon you could say that Francis and me a kind of expert and actually the reason we met, which is media. Yes, we are both media sluts. Uh, it has been known that we shared the radio airways for a long time together at Triple J and here we are in the new realm of the podcast doing the same because we love it and we love communication and we like arguing ideas. And, and we love attention. We do. We, we are- fucking need it. We need it. And that's why we're here, Which, just in the desperate hope of some. We're a little message in the bottle. We're still putting it out there on the waves and hoping that someone will pick it up. Uh, this is true. And we, you know, we love 
it's important to us to actually reach people and and you know, have a meaningful engagement with them, whether it's on okay, a podcast. We, we, you know, it's all we're good at. All right, we got our, nothing else. It's it's our skill base. Like, no, I'm I'm actually being real here. So am I. I'm like, making a joke about it. I got nothing um, else. One of the reasons that you and I maintain a friendship um, is that we're kind of similar. We covered that last time for you know a set of social conditions reasons. Uh, we have a you know. We're of the same tribe, uh, working class, Maldi. Irish, Catholic, white, blah, you know. So we feel each other. We have a lot of the same reference points. It's all right, you know. We have a shared language. Doesn't mean we're not interested in your language. Doesn't mean your language is inferior to ours or anything like that. It's just we, we, we communicate tribally. And the other reason... Um, I think that we're mates is you know, shared uh, interest in, in, in media. And look, I want to ask you, when you were very young and I was very young and we're pretty much precisely the same age, christened within weeks of each other, I imagine. I think so. Probably in a very similar frock. <laughs> You would have worn a little frock. I would have had a little white frock on, a Catholic have. christening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, hey. We're all gender neutral in the eyes of Jesus. That's right. I think that's very important he to remember. He has unisex toilets in heaven. <laughs> um, um, so is, you know, the experience of media. So when you were very young and I was very young, and this is not a selfish thing. I'm sort of, I wanted to, I want to get to this for you. I want to get you into the head of your mainstream media provider. Did you think what you were doing was very important? When I was on the radio, you mean? Or when yeah, I was when were you, you were quite young. Yes. And you started to, okay, first earn money yes. out of doing things and then gain audience because, you know, you and I were kind of prominent back in the day. I mean, you've stayed prominent. They kept chucking me out. <clears throat> um, you left voluntarily. I left because I got my ass kicked out because I'm, I'm a pain in the ass to work with basically. I could say because it's – it's because I'm brave and I'm very political. No, I'm just a pain in the ass. <laughs> All of those things, Helen. It's no, I'm I'm really difficult to work with. Sure. Um, did you think what you were doing was really important? At various times, yeah, I think we did. I think not not initially. It was just an excuse to when we were kids growing growing up, go on the radio and play records and proselytize your love of the Clash or whatever it was that you're into. But when we were at Triple J in those early days, yeah, I think we felt like we were doing something important. Yeah, we we did. Yeah, I think we definitely did, particularly as we moved to regional centres and we got a sense of just what sort of impact uh, a station like that had on it. Yeah. Young people who didn't have any sense of their place in the world or, or a voice that spoke to them. Yeah. yeah, definitely felt that that was important stuff. And I have said this publicly before years ago, but I still have said it, that I felt as though I was part of an organisation that had an impact. These days I think, you know, what I was actually doing was playing interesting tunes that kids might not have otherwise got to hear and that the primary function that I had was to be the Spotify equivalent of yesteryear, and oh, I think that's a bit reductive. I think there's, I, no, that I mean that's how I genuinely feel. Like I, I don't think that's right, though. Okay, what is correct is that you, whoever you are, when you work in a team, or even you know on your own, there's a certain sense that you must acquire. There is a point to this, Francis. I will draw you into it. There is a certain sense that you must acquire that what you're doing is vital, that what you're doing means something. You need to keep telling yourself that in order to get up and go to work every day. Now, what is occurring around the West these days is this extraordinary sense that a lot of workers might have that what they're doing is meaningless. You might feel this too. Do you know this guy, David Graeber? No, I don't. G-R-A-E-B-E-R. No reason you should, but there is a reason you should search him out. I think you'd love him. Okay, he's an anarchist. 
He's not a Marxist. Still. Oh, how are you coping with that, crossing oh, that divide, Helen? Cognitive dissonance. I talk to post-Keynesians, mate. I'll fucking talk to anyone <laughs> who's got a good We idea. had that argument last time. Yeah, I stand by my claims. Okay, so David Graeber actually has, uh, I believe, a book available in April. I'm not sure of the title yet, but I know it's in production and I shh, spoke with a friend who's read a draft uh, or an associate who's read a draft and Graeber you look him up on YouTube, uh, he does this thing called Bullshit Jobs and he's got <laughs> a Gmail account. I can't remember what it is. Look up Graeber. I already uh, like this guy. Famous for writing a book called uh, Debt, um, The Last 5,000 Years. Really, oh, my gosh, I've got to buy it for you because for your upcoming, when's your birthday? It's really soon, It's right? really soon. Is it today? No, Is no. it tomorrow? It's the- it's, no, okay, we won't go yeah, into it. It's very soon. We, we won't go into it. I must remember your birthday. For your birthday, I will give you David Graeber's book because I know you will um, intellectually jizz all over it. It's a history of debt. It's based on the work of heterodox economist Michael Hudson. I'm making it sound way more boring than it is. <laughs> it's really good and Graeber who is a prefigurative anarchist, has done, um, has finished from from what I know, it'll be released soon, I guess people are proofing it, a book on bullshit jobs, you know, business development management. When I look at LinkedIn, for instance, and I see what people list what they do and I think, is that actually in this plane of existence, the way that people are – there's so many people striving for excellence and personal improvement that it's a conga line with nobody joining the back because everybody's already on the conga line teaching each other how to be excellent. It it, it does amaze me that there are so many leaders in the world. Everybody's learning to be a leader. Yeah. It's this extraordinary self-perpetuating industry of self-improvement. And it just doesn't make sense mathematically. It's like, you know, and with – I don't know if you are – Heard uh, a recent podcast with myself and Dr. Shakira Hussein. I love calling her doctor. I love having a friend who's a doctor. And a we, brain doctor, like a smart person. No, she's a feminism she's, doctor. That's what I mean. Like a, you know, like, yeah, yeah. She's not going to fix you. She's a doctor of. Yeah. Oh, she's a doctor of the patriarchy, the disease of the patriarchy. There you go. That's straight to ICU. And, you know, we were talking about this too on International yes. Women's Day. The primary emphasis in Western media is you two can be a leader. I know. I'm and amazed. It's like what the. Fuck, like just not mathematically possible. We can't all be fucking leaders. Why is it, and what would be so wrong with not being a leader? Well, you know, I mean. Because it's now a virtue that people have to strive towards to prove their worth in a sense, to have leadership qualities. And some people naturally are. I mean, there are some people who are just fucking oh, lead singers. No. You know, they just. Oh, some people are lead singers you know, and some people just, are charismatic and, yeah. you know, and, you and know, they, some people are sort of born to dominate conversation, I don't know any person. <laughs> no, we're still trying to find one, aren't we? But you know what I mean. There is, leadership can be important and really quite beneficial and sustaining in, in, in many facets of life, but not everybody has to be a leader. But we sort of well, we've fetishised it now as, as the, the end game for, for excellence and I, I mean, don't buy it. In, in, in terms of actual social organisation, like, yeah, there should be some amazing humans that are awesome at shit. Yeah that can creatively or technically, oh, I hate the verb, but inspire us or at least make us marvel at what certain of our species are capable of. But in terms of social organisation, well, I'm a utopian, neither a leader nor a follower be. A dictatorship of the proletariat by the proletariat, fuck leadership, right? But this is the thing that... You've got to show me the blueprint to how that's going to work. How does capitalism work? Badly. <laughs> Let's try something new is my serving suggestion. Okay? My, my analogy is, yeah, sure, the Rolling Stones have Mick Jagger strutting around out the front, but they're fucking nothing without Charlie Watts. Somebody has to be on the drum kit. Yeah. Everything comes back I to I don't know why there's no mention of Keith here, but sure. <laughs> this is the problem, Francis. We've got to get back to the bullshit jobs thing yes. again. But this is the problem. What you're doing is you're looking at a small unit. Yes. And you're saying, or a small human interaction, such as the interactions that occur um, within friendships, within groups, or within a rock and roll group called the Rolling Stones, those young boys will go far. Now, why do you think 
that you can just upscale that and say, well, I've viewed these five people and how they interact on stage. You've read a lot about the Rolling Stones. You know a lot about the Rolling Stones. I mean, fuck me. They are such a good, they were such an amazing band. Like, can we just fucking talk about like, (laughs) what's your favourite album? Oh, here we go. Is it Exile? Yeah, I, I oscillate between that, but I do love Let It Bleed. Just it's, oh my it's God. so concise and it. it's so it. prescient for its time. Made in the year of my birth. Um, what about a bit of black and blue, though? Yeah, let it. Come on. No, it's got, I, and some girls as well, I think. was Some the, girls isn't bad. The last great shot in the locker from the Stones. Yeah. But th- in terms of run of records, you know, the four pillars of Stones classics, you know, from, from Sticky? Sticky Fingers. Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, and then the Magnus Opus uh, Exile. You know, they don't, have to, they don't have to explain anything to anyone. They don't have to explain Dirty Work, Steel Wheels, or any other pox stuff that came later. Okay, I have had a few. He hasn't. But I have had a few in the emerging <laughs> um, Francis and the Vag and Knackers tradition. But, okay, one thing I like about the Stones Okay, I mean the old stones, not the new stones, the exile stones. And one thing I fucking hate about Zeppelin is. Oh, here we go. This well, is no, no, I mean, between us, like, I will still fucking listen to. I reckon, I mean, it's two, right? It's two with Zeppelin, right? It's two, yeah? Yeah, I think or two. Not. And I do like Houses of the Holy. Oh, I yeah. know, I know. But I mean, you know, note for note. Why don't you just exhume the corpse of Robert Johnson and piss on it, you racist fucking appropriating fuckers? The one thing that the Stones did that I do respect them for was acknowledge their extraordinary debt to a culture, a music that was made exclusively by black Americans and they were always very open about that I understand they weren't necessarily financially averse to paying for the songs and the rhythms that they used, but Zeppelin were fuckers about it. Just stuck a knife in my heart. But you might be right. You know, you know Zeppelin were fuckers about it, and right? that, And a whole lot of other things as well. Okay. This but is- the wide appropriation of, of black musical culture is not uh, just Led Zeppelin's cross to bear, is it? No, well, it's it's Elvis's, frankly. Um, but- Cultural appropriation is another whole yes, we've got conversation. Track. Back on track. Hope that was interesting. We will get back to rock and roll later because I want to talk to you about. Oh no, no, no! Like, let's talk my music. It's like I am completely devoid of skill. Like completely <laughs> devoid of skill. But I don't think I would be alive without it. I know I wouldn't. Yeah, I know. It's like it's sappy as shit, but without music, I don't think I would have survived adolescence. I wouldn't have. <laughs> but here we are. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about music. Uh, you, I've got one you... question later about music, about okay, my current you... musical obsession. All right. Will you keep coming back and yeah. coming to my shoddy table and talking to me about shit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Cool. I hope you don't get a busy and important job soon because I'll miss you. I'm, I'm only going to get – what's all those important. jobs again? Uh, they're bullshit jobs. I don't know. Jobs. I haven't had one. B- bullshit jobs. That's yeah. all I'm going to So get. bullshit jobs. So um, so Francis has noticed it when looking at LinkedIn. Have you been doing a little bit of LinkedIn Yeah, of lately? course I'm having a look and seeing what's around and it's just there's a whole lot of people not producing a whole lot of stuff. This is, this is Graeber's contention. There's nothing it, being actually – Produced even in a physical sense. Yeah, this is totally. You've got to read David Graeber. I think we're on the same wavelength. Shit, nobody's yeah. making nothing. Like, I mean, for years and years and years, we've been joking, right? And you've heard it too about, like, you know, there is. I think it was like put on the internet in 1999, like the bullshit job title generator yeah, and stuff. And it was like, you, you know, when there was the first Silicon Valley explosion bubble, um, uh, followed by uh, Nasdaq crash in 2000. Then, you know, people were already like, what is, you know, dark social <laughs> cooperative management and shit? Like, what are all these stupid titles? You know, people are grappling in this new space for new rationales to basically get venture capital. And you know, and you might have the experience, and 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 I know 
people who just do fucking, fucking nothing at work. And so Graeber's contention is that capitalism has become unproductive, that there are plenty of people doing jobs that produce virtually nothing, that it's kind of like a universal basic income that is very uneven by proxy and that by necessity the job market that we need in order to buy the goods that are sold in our nations and societies are provided and we do need this knowledge class who does nothing. So if you feel sometimes like you're doing fucking nothing and you're very alienated, an old Marxist word, from the product of your labour, well, hey, you are. Not many of us feel close to our labour. And I want you, honey, can we, can we be all, all about Francis? Go on. Okay? Let's do that. So you have made a decision not to work in media a few months ago, right? Oh, a, a particular job that I sort of had run into the ground and felt like I was it stopped being fun for the first time in 30 years, being on the radio. It didn't, wasn't working for like me can, anymore. Can we be a bit more honest? It didn't only stop being fun. You were going through a reaction to the nature of work. Yeah, I was getting pretty depressed about it. Yeah, yeah I was struggling. I was really struggling. And it was the first time that it happened to me and so I quit and I'd never done that before. Well, not, at least not without. Welcome yeah. <laughs> to alienation and depression. Yeah. So, but, you know, I'd usually had a plan. I'd go and do something else or I had another goal. I'd sort of be, leave something and set sail in another direction full steam ahead. But I haven't done that this time and it's been rather challenging. As we Marxists like to say, plans is something you make while capitalism laughs at you. <laughs> um, so you have felt, would you say, a loss of sense of purpose? Massively. It's the one thing that I've really noticed um, is that loss. Well, there are two things, I think. Loss of sense of purpose or a search for purpose, I think, is that probably – because I think the purpose had already been lost prior to me quitting. I think that had already occurred. And that was the reason why I did quit because I didn't feel there was any sense of purpose in doing it anymore. But that search for purpose, which I had always been fairly sure of in the past, I know what I want to do. This is my goal. I'm going to pursue it and there'll be some setbacks and it won't always work out, but at least I can see the light on the hill. This is what I want okay. to do. That doesn't exist for me at the moment. So right. I'm in that, that uncertainty. But that's, you know, that's something that is both a product of the nature of labour in my view any labour, whatever labour you do, whatever you do for money, and, hey, this includes lining up at Centrelink, right, and that is a fucking labour. And if you have ever received a so-called benefit, it's not a benefit, it's a fucking entitlement, you know, or it should be. You know, I mean, why has why have words like welfare and entitlement acquired such a negative connotation? Shit, you need money to live. You've got no other option, you know. Jeez. So that's work too. We're all workers. You know, we all have to make compromises in order to survive, except for those people who go out to the letterboxes and collect checks, you know, collect dividends. They do fuck all, except gloat um, and, you know, buy more things. So this sense of alienation can happen to anybody and it can happen even when you are actually doing good work. And a younger you or an older you might have found the work that you were doing that in that time made you feel alienated was actually very productive and meaningful. Now, some people do jobs that we could, and this is what the Graeber book is all about. I can't wait to read it, actually. I'm looking forward to it now, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'll love the debt book. I'll give it to you. I'll buy you one. Do you have an e-reader? Yes, I do. Okay, I'll just buy you one and send it to your thing. Um, she said very technically, a mistress of the internet. <laughs> so at another time, you could have found that work relevant. Well, right? another time I did. That's the, that was what shocked me because I'd done it for so okay. long. So at another time in your life, you might have found what you and I did years ago on youth radio was irrelevant and pointless. You might have found that. I certainly found that toward the end of my time at Triple J. I felt as though I were an automaton, I felt as though there was no possibility for me to be authentic. I thought that I wasn't capable of representing the stakeholders, which is the audience. And I felt that the organization had changed to become more inward looking and more protective of itself and far less interested, not 
because it was a bad person. A corporation can't be a bad person. It can be a bad collection of decisions cut worse. That's the only thing. But I saw the world change and I felt as though this organisation, in, in, in this case a state-funded broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, had become far more interested in preserving its own funding in becoming less um, litigable, in protecting its own assets and interests than it was interested in engaging the stakeholders, which is the audience, which is everyday people. Now, through no fault of its own, right, through everyday conditions and even though I got the sack, I was having those thoughts for a few years before I left. It felt like, yeah, I don't have the team spirit anymore. I don't feel like I'm real. I know that the listeners don't think that I'm real. I'm not connecting. I can't connect. And this feeling can strike all of us no matter what we do. But what I want to say is that it strikes people in the present who work in paid media jobs far less fucking often than it should. And that's where I kind of want to, based on your experience recently and memories of the past and your ideas about the future, Francis, I want to talk about the thing that we call fake news. Does this make any sense to you at all as an introduction? Yes, it does because I think a lot – That was the introduction to Yeah, we finally got there. <laughs> How many minutes are we in? I don't know, like a day. <laughs> in between the plushies and the stones. <laughs> yeah, no, hey, the conversation about the stones, which is – oh, my gosh, there were so many great records around that time. What's going on? Have you been listening to that lately? Well, I haven't listened to it. I love that record so deeply. It is. You know, I'm going to say. Soul Symphony. I'm going to say best record of all time. It's right up there. I mean, Barry Gordy didn't want to release it because he thought it was a bit highfalutin and wrong. It makes and me. Marvin had to fight for it to be released. Inner City Blues. Amazing. It sounds so fresh production-wise, right? Have you listened to it in recent months? Uh, I hear it all the time. I've got it on, you know, it's one of my all-time faves. That's you know, and it's it, so beautifully produced, and he did it all himself. It's genius. It's just enough. Yeah, fake news and fake media. Marvin Gaye's a genius is not fake news. It's no, fake. it's a fucking. That is a verifiable Ooh, fact. fact. Check that across. Cross check that reference. It's not an alternative fact. No, it's a real true thing. Oh my god, that record. Fuck. Anyway, fake news. Okay, so the reason that I talked about your experience of media, my experience of media, I had for different reasons at different times. One of the reasons I might have had it at a different stage of life to you is that I'm a little bit more mentally unstable than you. Okay, way more. Oh, uh, you know. Uh, another thing is test the ground. Another thing is, you know, another another influence is 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 sexism, right? So I won't that is true. I, I won't go into it. Like I'm not saying, you know, women we all have such a hard time, you know, because we fucking don't. Not all of us, you know, not fucking white knowledge class bitches who went to uni <coughs> like me. Most of the time, oops, there we I go. Yeah, sorry, that was Helen getting angry over now. Her um, champagne glass and getting angry on behalf of my gender. <laughs> And when I talk about my gender, I understand that my sisters experience oppression in markedly different ways and that the sexism that a white woman experiences is in no way comparable, nor is it structurally identical to the sexism a woman with a disability faces, a woman of colour, a queer woman of which I am one, etc., etc. enough. Okay. We all feel alienation. We all feel like what we're doing is bullshit. We all feel just like bullshit at one one or two times in our our lives, and because if you don't, you've stopped breathing. I think, yeah, or at least you, you've certainly stopped thinking. You know, I what? think the element to that that's important is that you need to you need to be brave to question what you do as well sometimes, and I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. So maybe they for a reason. Yes, exactly. How else do you get yourself to work? You know, Helen, pay I your fucking mortgage couldn't or agree pay more. your fucking rent and raise your fucking children without going rah rah. It's great to be an Uber driver. 
I couldn't agree more. It's bloody scary. It's great to be an Uber driver. I just love being a social media manager and saying things I don't believe. Oh, my goodness. These low-document, high-interest mortgages I'm selling by telephone for $15 an hour, they're the best thing ever. And in order to get yourself to work, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, you have to believe for some period or another, at least have to come to some kind of peace with your work in order to do it. Well, your work becomes functional then. Your work, you just do the work in order to achieve the ends that you need, which is paying your your mortgage or feeding your kids. Let's be real. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's be real. You and I have never really had to do work for very long that we fucking hate, right? I've been incredibly lucky. I have done a little bit of phone work. I have sold sold low-doc mortgage loans. I've written copy for cheap beauty products. I've written copy for skin lightening, like in order to make like this thing, it's like directed at women of colour. You know, you have this discount on becoming more like a Caucasian and it was not good and I felt sick but I needed the $35 that this piecework gave me in order to survive. And, okay, I'm going to be honest, most of my experiences like that didn't last very long. I've mostly been able to make a living doing something that I'm more or less okay with. But most of us don't. But in order to survive, you know, you have to develop a certain positive attitude to your work, you know, like speak to your Uber driver. Like I, you know, even if it's like, and this is increasingly the case, or your, you know, Deliveroo person or what have you, even if I don't like the idea of the company, I like meeting new people. I like making sure you have your dinner. I like driving. Whatever story you need to tell yourself, you'll tell it for a while, yeah? You've got to function and survive, absolutely. And so, you know, it's a real skill to say, you know, what I do is bullshit and do that bullshit every day and not get into a depressed mess. You've got to tell yourself this story that what you do is important. So this happens, I think, to a degree to all workers. I'm sure that it even happens to some degree to the people who are employed in the Philippines to check all of that Facebook content that we in the West don't want to see. So you know how you might complain to Facebook about offensive content? And, well, you might. You might see something offensive. You know who has to check that? It's a group of very low-paid people in the Philippines and they watch. So wade through the sewer. They watch the rape threats. They watch the beheading videos. These are the people whose work it is and that is a form of emotional punishment that I can't imagine. And then, you know, I wonder about the women who make our clothes in, in Bangladesh. Do they think, yeah, you know, I'm making people, mostly women because women in the West, buy most of the clothes. This is not bullshit. Just go to your department store or go online and see how many women's clothes there are in relation to blokes' clothes. We are, you know, this gender baby, um, no exception. We're keeping that up. Call it sexism, call it whatever the fuck you want. You're waving knackers. But I I wonder if if those women, and they're mostly women, who work in those textile factories are telling themselves a story as well in order to keep going to the factory. Probably not as much because their conditions are so harsh and the conditions of the people who make your iPhone in China are so harsh and their options are so few that it's just like I'm just going to be out and out depressed. But I would say that this is part of the nature of work, that you have to feel, you have to tell yourself a story that it's okay. And the reason that I want you to really understand this and from a Marxist standpoint, we call this part of the four forms of alienation. You can read about it in the German ideology if you want. Fuck, I sound Christian when I quote Marx. It's you like, do. I really it's in do. the Old Testament. No, I really do. But it's like. He didn't hand down that book from the mountain on two stone tablets. No, no. And there's stuff that I don't necessarily like about Marx. And there's some real brutality, some real scientific brutality in Marx that I have real kind of like emotional and ethical issues with. But. The reason I bang on about Marx is that fuck, he wrote down some good shit. 
And one of the good accounts that he wrote was the account of alienation from the sort of productivity we do. So his theory, right, is that we are naturally productive, right? This is the thing, this is one of the other things that I like about Marx. Fuck, I go on. Oh, my God, I'm really like a Christian conversion camp. It's just seriously. I mean, It's heel song with red yeah, flags. Yeah, it. I know. I know how it sounds, <laughs> but it just helped me cope, you know, not in a personal sense but also in a sense like I can see a different world. So the thing about the capitalist is that the capitalist makes a lot of uh, assumptions about human nature, that some people are born leaders, that we are naturally competitive, that this is the way it's always happened, always will happen. The Marxist makes very few assumptions about human nature. One of them is that we are by nature social. Another one is that we are by nature productive. And that the things that we do and that the fantasies that we erect in our mind before we produce them, whoever we are, whether we're making a model out of toothpicks or whatever we do that we want to create and that we want to connect. I think these are fair things to say about human beings. What do you reckon? Absolutely, they are. But the question then is how do we arrange our affairs in order to do those things and does it set up hierarchies that would allow uh, a collaborative approach to our pursuits and endeavours and share goals that would allow for a a collective effort? Or well, do, so we naturally, to- do we naturally gravitate to hierarchies and, and power plays and power struggles as a form of the human condition? Well, a capitalist would say that we we necessarily gravitate toward hierarchy. An anthropologist, if you asked an, an ethnographer or an anthropologist, would say depends on where you've lived in the world. A Marxist would say that these ideas, okay, so this is the big thing with Marxism, being determines consciousness. What you have experienced determines in great past part who you are. Whereas a capitalist thinks the opposite. What you think determines the society you're in. So for a Marxist, you think, well, the experience comes first and the idea comes after to justify it. And so a capitalist thinks that the other way around. So Marxists make very few assumptions about human nature. But back to the topic at hand, what they are you with me? Are you prepared to entertain these ideas? No, I'm enjoying the conversation about you it. You sure? The duality, the difference between the two. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's a very clear difference. Yes. The, and if you want to look it up, it's in philosophical terms, it's the difference between a materialist and an idealist at its crudest, right? So an idealist thinks that if a tree falls in the forest you know, it falls in the forest. Oh, shit, no, that's a bad example. An idealist thinks that the idea occurs first. In the beginning, the word was God, and that the ideas exist independent of humans thinking them. A materialist thinks that being determines the ideas. So the experience determines the ideas. And this is... The for me, not for all Marxists, but for me, the thing that really gets me in the guts and thinks, fuck yeah, that makes sense. Being does determine consciousness. Who you are makes you think a particular thing. The system that you want to support makes you think a particular thing. So one of the very few truths that a Marxist person would say about humanity is that we are naturally productive and then the other thing is that we're naturally social. I think all people agree with that. Like Aristotle said it, oh, several decades ago I think now, that man is by nature social. (laughs) That's the only thing we can really say about humankind or to quote Justin Trudeau, person kind. Does he deserve a slap with the wet fish for that? Oh, fuck me. Let's do a whole show on I hate Justin Trudeau. I don't hate him, but I just want to say- No, for his liberal fucking hypocrisy. Dude, wind it back a bit. Uh, Seriously. But don't, you know, like (laughs) keep being a liberal hypocrite until people see your hypocrisy, you Disney fucking neoliberal prince. Keep hiding behind (laughs) feminism, you know. Keep hiding behind those good vibes. 
until you eventually reveal yourself to be the neoliberal cunty town that you truly <laughs> are. Okay, so I'm all for like ideology revealing yeah. itself because, you know, Marxist, whatever, whatever. Fuck, I know that I sound like a Christian. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with Christians. You go, you worship, you have faith. So this is what, you know, I believe and what other folks believe, whether naturally or because, or you know, whether just by instinct or feeling or because they've read some shit or whatever, that there's not a lot we can say about how human beings really are. We can't say that there's, you know, different people in this world. We can't say really what is different about men and women aside from the, you know, the genitally obvious and the reproductively obvious. Can't really say due to either kind of like so-called common sense or science that there's any inherent difference between so-called races, can we? No, definitely not. But there is, in, is culture and the differences in culture a product of experience? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, you could put people in different fucking places, they're going to have different cultures, right? It just happens and that's good. Like, let's make culture. I would like more time to make culture, right? Wouldn't you? I'm in babe dinner for 40, 40, 30, 30, 30 years of my life as my job. In a very, in a very, in a very unscholarly way, I think about how this nation was invaded and I think about my ancestors, your ancestors who came here in chains, and I think about the peoples whose land we stole and claimed and still haven't come to terms with, and I think about the murders and pretty sure that my ancestors would have murdered some black Australians, probably yours too. Certainly we're completely indifferent to it, that's for sure. One oh, yeah, maybe not indifferent. I mean, you know, you still go like go to Strat. Have you been to Stratty? Stradbroke Island? Yeah. No, I don't think I ever have. Okay, so in Stratty, if you ever have, right, I happen to go there for bizarre reasons and I've actually got a mate who lives there now. Do you know Chris Graham who runs New Matilda? No, I know who he is though. He's a fucking great guy. I mean, fucking insane, but like me or you insane, actually probably a bit more like me insane. <laughs> um, you're relatively stable as we've established. Um, so there's if you ever go to Stradbroke Island in Moreton Bay, just outside of Brisbane, Go to Stradbroke Island and see the museum and then ask the curator or the person on the desk, what did this building used to be? It was a sanitarium. It was an asylum. And, oh, okay, so what, just for the mad people of Brisbane? No, for people who were clearing the land. So the sanitarium, which is now a museum in Stradbroke Island, was the place where people who had been asked to or been commanded to kill Aboriginal people, the white people who'd been commanded to kill Aboriginal people, lived and died. That's where you went. You went to an island prison basically. So your screams couldn't be heard on the mainland. And I wonder, I mean, you know, fuck, the, the, the tragedy of having your own culture decimated, of course. But when your work and your prescription is to kill people, what the fuck happens to you? Hey, you go mad, right? And that was something that was just like an everyday accidental experience. I happened to be there as a travel writer, right? I was supposed to be writing about how great it was to visit Queensland. Couldn't find a positive spin on that. Not with your complexion and skin colour. No, you can't. But I The mean, sun is not your friend, Helen. Yeah, but... Find a positive spin on come to Stradbroke Island. Well, there is a positive spin if people actually go there and discover some true history. Yeah, but like I was writing for an in-flight magazine, Francis. People aren't looking for the truth in the in-flight magazine. Trying to, They're looking for something cheap to buy in the. Uh, but it had, I don't know. In that moment, I just thought about people in a way. My ancestors, in particular, because some of my ancestors used to live up that way, and I just thought, like you know, sure what you say, people are indifferent, but what if they're actually complicit in the torture and the racism? What happens to them? This is not in any way to minimise the, the, the cultural and the physical genocide, the diaspora, the incarceration, all of these things are ongoing. 
But what happens when your work is that, you know? Well, I've been spared having to know that, which is one of the great – we are probably the luckiest generation in that sense because we haven't been asked to do such things. We've been shielded from them. People are. You saw the Don Dale thing, right? And a but lot for of, the most part, I mean, we haven't been conscripted to, to fight in the war. We've been forced to ask that question of ourselves and we've lived changing though, relative like, affluence. You know, you've seen this, this um, and I mean, you know, in Australia, like we actually lose more people in military training exercises than we do in war because, you know, the US is our ally and most war is, real war, you know, is now conducted remotely. And so we still have deaths um, in military training. There are still rapes in military training and you've seen, you know, the military now, we need a bigger military, so they're advertising toward women and the same thing and, you know, low-income earners always. So what about people who have to be prison guards? What about people who have to be in the military? You know, all the, all that shit. And this is a really extreme example of your work, your labour being alienated. And if we make this very basic foundational that is like, a first idea, like you can't go back from this. We are agreeing to this single truth. And this single truth is that we are naturally productive. We like to spend our time doing something that we feel is useful to the people that we feel connected to. Which is what you do when you write though, is that when you're writing an article for crime. Hey, it totally depends, right? It totally depends. I make concessions all the time because I have to, right? And there's a whole lot of things that, but I mean, look, I'm a, Honestly, I'm about fucking five seconds away from wanting to be a completely crowdfunded, like directly funded writer. I happen to know really great people from really great organizations that tolerate me. But some days I'm like, do I really want to say unhindered what I think is true? I'm going to have to get directly funded by people and there are people I know who do that. Um, and, but it's still no solution. Like, but you know, like to compare what we do with what, uh, for, for a dollar and what you have done for a dollar with what other people do, like no comparison. But again, I want to get back to the thing where for various reasons, people in media feel more than you, probably people in professional media, which is still influential, no matter what you say, they feel that what they do is so fucking important because every worker needs to feel what they're doing is important. But we have this whole industry to support the idea that entertainment and media are important and who wins the Oscar that year is going to be a source of inspiration and transformation. And, you know, propaganda is important and it does change people's minds. And so I want to get to this idea of fake news and ask you if you think what we call and remember there are various definitions of it, what we call fake news is what we once might have called propaganda. I'm not so sure. I think fake news is a function of what I call the intellectual iron curtain in that people can be challenged by views that they uh, either find repugnant or wrong and just say that's fake news and therefore they no longer have to address the issues that are inherent yeah. in what's been written or said. And so it's become a way of reinforcing the silos in which we now communicate and congregate. So you talk about the communal nature of human experience, but we've built now a culture tech, uh, through the digital world and elsewhere where we congregate around like-minded people and like-minded people Oh, alone. my gosh. And there's so many studies around this that all seem to come up with the same result. You know, so the other ex- extension of that is the idea We're that, niched. Yeah, the, the idea that, you know, the, the, the idea of relativism. So we can have a relative view of the world which we, allows us to see what we believe to be inherent facts, which is totally opposed to somebody who's watching the same set of events uh, who have a different view of, the, of that, and you, both of them consider the other fake news. So there's, there's no contested ground in the middle where there's a competition of ideas to try to determine what really happened or what people really think because there's no conversation going on. I think that that's the… That's okay, sorry, sorry. Back up. What do you mean there's no conversation going on? Well, I'm a critical thinker. I'd like to think I am. So I'd like to think that I could read something that I might disagree with uh, on the on the same event. On this, you know, uh, give me an example. Give me a real life example. A real life example. So, for instance, you know, I'm trying to think of a real life news example where you could read. Okay, what's your view on the war in Syria? Do you have a strongly held view? 
Uh, not a really well-informed one, uh, obviously, because I'm not on the ground there. But, but just, okay, with no well, judgment, You've honestly. been there, so you've got a better sense of the, the society uh, than I, I have. But I wasn't at, no. I wasn't in Syria while the war was on. I mean, well, it, what me, I saw was a really fucking nice country. Yeah, well, that, well I'm sure that's what it was. Uh, it's a con- now it's become the proxy war for the superpowers of our okay, age. Okay, cool. I'm glad we're agreed on that. But that's, that's what it's what's become. What's the dominant narrative? What's the dominant narrative? That uh, that that Bashir al-Assad is is a criminal, um, that he's in league with the Russians, and that the rebels are great, right? That's the dominant narrative, and and the white helmets are our one chance of hope. I don't look. I don't think that people see it. I'm hoping people don't see it. As you know, black people and white. see it like this, right? What? Like, why should you take an an interest in Syria? Like, why? You know, like. In your everyday experience, I take an interest in Syria because it's my job, kind of, to stay abreast of where the really bad things in the world are happening. You do because you're a guy who's interested in history, his place within it, his connections to others. But most people, what they hear about Syria is that um, Assad poisons his own people and that the white helmets are awesome. That's what most people believe in the West, right? Possibly. Oh, no, come on. Well, it's such a confused picture, isn't it, in between that and the Islamic uh, fundamentalists who are involved fighting on one side, the Peshmerga and the, and the KPG. Such as the white helmets. Yes. It, it's not a good guys and bad guys world, is it? You know, and that's the weird thing. If you're Australian, you know, my one of my least favourite prime ministers of my lifetime and the second shortest serving ever, Tony Abbott, made this comment about Syria, which is it's baddies versus baddies. It's actually kind of close to the truth. And his foreign minister, Julie Bishop, was at the time very much in agreement with that view and said, we don't want to see this nation stateless. We might not love Assad, but as she said, realpolitik, which basically means do the practical thing. Do. Which is what they didn't do with Iraq and, and Hussein. And so it's that. what they're not doing now in Syria, which is a mess and a mess that is to some degree controlled by narratives and the narratives are those brown people are bad and some of them are worse than others and we must intervene. And this is now... Now, I don't pretend to know everything about Syria because, my God, it's a complex thing. And there's a reason that, you know, even the US sends, you know, initially hundreds of people who are experts in foreign policy to the territory to try and work out what, what's happening because, fuck me, I mean, it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? But one thing that we know is that demolishing a state never works out well. And one thing we might agree on is that killing large numbers of people is probably a bad idea. <laughs> Just get to put it out there. Morally it's a bad idea and quite clearly, practically, it's been a disaster for Europe because what it's done is displaced millions and millions of people and caused a refugee crisis of the type we haven't seen since World War II on the European continent, which nobody wanted. But because of what happened in Syria, it has been the consequence of the behaviour and intervention of many, yeah. many different actors. And if you don't. State and otherwise. And if you don't understand Syria and if you don't care to understand Syria, don't feel bad. I mean, there's a fucking lot of shit there to get your head around. However, you're kind of coerced into having an opinion about it. And Well, you can't have an opinion about the true nature of the refugee crisis unless you know what is going on in a place like Syria. I agree entirely, like so much. I, I, I can't even tell you how much I agree. And I think to think of the so-called crisis, and it's not a crisis, you know. it's Not, not in this it's, country. It's not. No, but it's an ongoing fact of life and it grows and it grows. And the official figure is what? Last time I looked, which was a few year, weeks ago now, like 65 million official refugees that are, that is people counted by the UN, and we know climate change is going to create more refugees, and we know that climate change is going to fucking create conflicts that even the US didn't start, right? There's going to be more and more refugees. And if you just say, no, not here, well, you're fucking deluded. 
got to go somewhere. You can't, in my view, live and sleep well at night without medical intervention, knowing that there are people screaming and living in shit. You, they've got to, I mean, just to be like a sap about it, right? These people have to have something, don't they? History won't be kind to the way that we've dealt with this. I, I mean, I don't even care about what historians say. It's just like, do you never, I mean, you're going through a period where you're feeling a little rotten and sometimes when you feel a little rotten, and why shouldn't you? Because you've worked solid man for, what, 30 years? Don't think how many years. Yeah. About that. And why shouldn't you feel like shit? You've had a long time working really long days with not many holidays. You've brought up two children. You know, you keep a household afloat. Like why shouldn't you feel a bit fucking exhausted and alienated? And one of the bad and good things I've found when I'm experiencing periods of depression is that it really focuses my thoughts. I mean, not always in a good way, but sometimes I'm led out of an entirely selfish and self-preservation sense. And I know this happens to a lot of people. It might not happen to you. But because of that sort of like Western first world guilt kind of shit, you tell yourself this story, I'm not entitled to feel this way, even though you feel this way and even though there's nothing that will get you out of it except time, hopefully. I'm going to look for a place where things are worse and count my blessings. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. I mean, that's a… It doesn't work. No, but it's a natural inclination and I don't think it's not… No, it doesn't shift what you might feel, but it gives you some context to be able to value other things in your life that might yeah. allow you to feel better about where you are in the world. Can we tell? Can we call this period of your life depression? Bits of it, yeah. Yeah, it's the first time I've felt, um, felt that way, yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you, um, and it's hard while you're experiencing it and I'm just coming out of it, um, I want to ask you, are they, okay, without wishing to valorize depression in any of those historic ways, you know, not to romanticize it, not to say that it's beautiful, I want to ask you, has it taught you anything? Uh, I'm learning now, I think, yeah. I'm still processing a lot of what I've experienced. Uh, yeah, I think it has. It's What it's taught me is to listen to myself better than I have in the past yep. about the way that I – and make better decisions about how and what I want to do with the, my remaining time as I turn 50 next week. I mean, yeah. You yeah, know, so I mean, you and I don't have that many years left, right? That's the reality. If I contextualise it like that, I get horrified, but you're oh, right. Oh, I mean, more, much more than <laughs> half our lives yeah. are over. Yes, that's true. Objectively, that is true. And Unless Dr. Carl is right and we're all going to live to 150. In 10 years, sweetie. Come on, Carl. Where are you? I need your miracle drug. Uh. I don't know if I want to live that long anyway, but anyway. And, okay, so in 10 years, yes. our brains start significantly decaying. And as we are knowledge workers, and that's how we can earn a living, in 10 years we're going to be more or less redundant, right? I feel like I might be there already, but anyway. You are so not. <laughs> I mean, I adore you. I adore our conversations, you know, and apparently some people can tolerate them too. Yeah. Um, in 10 years you'll still be fine. And in 10 years, you'll be even crankier and I'm going to love that because imagine how I'll cranky I'll be when we're 60, right? This will be must-listen-to potting. But, you know, I mean, for me, and I'm not a person who experienced, like so many other people, you know, um, experienced depression as a child or anything like that. Like, no, I didn't have that. But Depression I did... is very much directly yeah. aligned with the experience of work for me, always to do with work. Yeah, I, I, I have had very real experience of, of depression in my family. So I've I know, and yeah. you've met my mum and you know just how it's how on. debilitating it has yeah. been. So I'm always low to say that I'm suffering depression because I've seen just how how profound it is and still is. Let's just say for our own sake that there are two kinds of depression. Yeah. There's the kind of depression that you're born with and then there's the you know more manageable kind that you get from life. Yeah. Or if you have a really bad life the way Less manageable kind. Yeah, which is what mum's got. And so I haven't had that. Yeah. And it might interest you to know that Hippocrates 
the first doctor, actually made that distinction between melancholy that arises for, which is what they used to call it in yeah. ancient Greece, melancholy that arises for no reason and that, you know, prolonged periods of sadness or melancholy that arises for a reason. That's what you have. That's what I've had. And I think it's easy to deal with in that sense because I can I can give it some shape and a name in a sense. I know what I'm dealing with even though at times the experience of it is a little bewildering and uh, just exhausting. What I, I, yeah, what, what I want to do for you if you have experienced what you feel might be depression is it is shit. I mean, fuck, you just want to stop feeling like that, but you got to deal with it. You're going to feel like that for a week or a couple of weeks or something, you know, I mean, for what good it can do, and it can do some good, it did for me, go see your doctor. And definitely if you can, talk to someone. But also don't disdain this peculiar upside of depression which can lead you to think about other people, which can lead you, strangely, to be more compassionate and even more involved with the world and your isolation. There are even some psychiatrists who theorise that the state of depression, and I would say the state of depression that is induced by life, not the state of depression that you might be born with, but the state of depression that is induced by life, it's like it gives you the space to think in a way that is very deep and very insular and can be very distressing. But what I'm going to say, apart from the time that you have, Francis, because you have decided to take some time out from work, you have become very curious in addition to becoming occasionally very sad. Have you noticed that about yourself? Yeah, I'm certainly much more interested in, in well, I can't see, whereas I used to be able to see quite clearly one path that I wanted to achieve or one or travel on. Now I'm. Are you thinking, fuck that path? Yeah, I don't. I can't even see the start of the path now. And that's my challenge is to accept that that's okay, that I'm living through a phase of uncertainty, which I've never really done before, but just to do the things that I can do today and, and just trust that um, one experience will lead to another, will lead, lead me to somewhere that I want to be rather than sort of going, shit, I really want to be doing that job or I really want to be living in that place or I want to really yeah. want to be, you know, earning that much money. All of that stuff doesn't seem to be apparent to me anymore or seem to be of a lot of value. And that disappearing has been quite a shock. Um, but I'm getting better at just accepting that where I am is where I am um, and I will just do what I need to do today and do it well and who knows what happens tomorrow. And if I can just get through those periods without being panicked or frightened by the fact that I can no longer just choose my path and walk it, then I'll be okay. Because I'm pretty bloody resilient, Helen. I mean, I've been pretty shit in the last couple of months, but I will hey, get up and- Hey, fuck, can I just say fuck resilience as a quality that is overvalued? You were saying to me earlier that, you know, you think that leadership is a quality that is overvalued. Can I actually just add resilience to that pile? Because if you want to fall apart and you need to fall apart, this is one thing I want for everybody, every single soul in the world. Not because I care, just because I think it would be a selfishly a nicer place to live in. You don't have to be resilient when you need to just kind of like metaphysically spew jizz or shit or lady <laughs> bone all over the whole place and fall down. There are the means. I agree. There's a social trampoline, right? It'll the fucking bounce you back up. If you need to fuck up, fuck up. That's all I fucking want. I want a world where people can fuck up. And I'm not denying that, but I, I it's just a personal thing. I you know, I will f I can have those moments, but it's important to me to be able to get up and go again. For a Catholic you're a real Protestant. <clears throat> Sweetie, you've got to go. You've got to go and see your little one. She is. She's calling me. She's just been at her guitar lesson. Um, I love that she's playing. I'm, I'm has she, is she playing electric? No, she wants to. She's playing acoustic at the moment. But what What kind of, like, what's her ideal guitar? Uh, well, what is it? I think she. She want a Strat? Does she want a Telly? I think she's got a, a she's a bit Rickenbacker at the moment. She's oh, bit, well, she's yes. a cool girl. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm hoping, I wanted her to learn how to play a Thin Lizzy song, but that might be, you know, a bit further down the track for her. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's- I've gone, see, this is the one thing before we finish. So one of the things I have discovered through my, my – We didn't mm, even start to discuss fake news. No. Um, will we'll you come back, back and yeah, talk we'll again? Yeah, we'll do that. I yeah. just I, – I, you know, like I don't even give a shit if anyone listens. It would be nice if you do, but it's just so nice to have a chat. Um, one of the things I have done is, you know, during those periods of melancholia, as the Greek, the ancient Greeks might say, is that music has again become really important to me. It always yeah. was, but now I'm listening to it differently again, which has been really good. But it also means that, and you will appreciate this, that I'm listening to a lot of like dirty old rock and roll that I'm loving. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I, I, hey, you and I have always been Iron Maiden fans. So, yeah, I'm playing. <laughs> I am playing my two own. minutes, <laughs> two <laughs> minutes, all of that stuff. <laughs> Just the dumb ass shit that I need in my life. Oh fuck! At the moment, dumb can be so awesome. That's right? all I need. Is How some awesome dumb is dumb shit? Big dumb, dumb rock and roll. Fucking shit. So man. at the moment, I'm and going blues like yeah, big dumb blues. Th- a thin Lizzie phase at the moment. Yeah. And suddenly, I've discovered in my increasing old age that harmonised guitars, which I used to. As a you know, punk rock, you just don't fucking spit on that stupidity. I actually love the sound of two harmonised guitars playing at the same time, boys back in town style. Okay. Who well, knew? I'm Who g- knew? So next time I'll be in leather pants and a bullet belt. But, hey, okay. you'll well, cope because that's um, the way you used to dress too. You guys, thank you so much for <laughs> listening if you've got that far. And you probably have because I have a very engaging co-host here. We, you will come around again, won't you, sweetheart? Bloody oath, I will. Okay. I'm going to bring my own soft toy. I've got one. We'll tell that story next Give time. Give my love we'll, to I'll the missus. I'll introduce knackers. The beautiful so. little girl. I will. Um, and come back and we're just we're going to talk about music, right? Yeah, we can do both. Yeah. We can do fake news. Well, no, we can just talk about music. I'll just let all my fake news shit out on my own. You don't want to fucking hear it. I got, you know how much I go on. All right, you, you, um, <laughs> you go home. Love to the girls, all See right? See ya. Bye. You've been listening to Knackers. And the badge with Francis Leach again. <laughs> <laughs>